I'd ask that you stand with me as we read the passage that'll be preached on in a moment. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5, and we are going to read verses 17 to 20. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is your relationship with the law of God? How do you feel about God's law? How do you think you're supposed to feel about it? How is the Christian supposed to relate to God's law? As those who are under grace and not under the law, what does the law mean to us? And what does it do for us? Is it a relic of the past? Does it hold any sway in our lives? Should it? Is the law of God something to be admired, embraced, and delighted in? Or is it something to be avoided or feared or simply left to the pages of history where it belongs? Well, this morning we're going to look at a crucial passage that will force us to take a look at how we relate to the law how we interpret these verses, these words of Christ, will affect how we understand nearly every major theme in Scripture. Everything that Christ did and everything that he said on earth is impacted by what he meant with these words. If we get this passage wrong, we will fall into dangerous error. We will fall into antinomianism. We'll teach that we may sin as much as we want because we have grace and grace will just increase and grace is wonderful. So let's embrace doing whatever makes us feel good. Or we might fall into legalism. We might try to once again force upon ourselves and force upon other people the burdens of the law in order to try and earn our way to God and to trying to earn our righteousness based on the law. Well, the Apostle Paul adamantly warned against both of these errors. We don't have time this morning to go into all of what Paul wrote so I'm just going to encourage you as a, as a from-the-pulpit assignment uh, this week to look at Paul's arguments in Romans 6 through 8 and then in Galatians 2 through 5. Well, the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson stated the importance of this passage in this way. So the theological and canonical ramifications of one's exegetical conclusions on this passage are so numerous that discussion becomes frighted with the intricacies of biblical theology. 
At stake are the relation between the Testaments, the place of the law in the context of the gospel, and the relation of this pericope to other New Testament passages that unambiguously affirm that certain parts of the law have been abrogated as obsolete. Obsolete. Well, at stake in this passage are our understanding of the authority of Scripture and tied to the authority of Scripture, the authority of Christ, and the relation between law and grace, and our understanding of God himself, who has declared that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Before we dive into this passage this morning, I want to try and help give us a structure by which we might better understand this text I want to give us a framework by which we can categorize the different aspects and uses of the law that have been studied and clarified for us in church history. I want to help give us context and a right bearing to keep us from falling into error as we look at these words from Christ in our text today. So first we're going to talk about the threefold division of the law. The church has long understood the benefits of categorizing the various laws in the Bible according to three divisions, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. These categories will help us make sense of the different ways that the New Testament authors interact with the law. They help us make sense why some commands appear to have an expiration date attached to them, why some appear to be tied to a specific nation or culture, and why some are universal and timeless. Well, since I've already given you one homework assignment, I'm not going to feel so bad in giving a second. to, To the text from Paul, I would also add to read chapter 19 out of the 1689 Baptist Confession, the confession of this church. That's the chapter on the law of God. It'll help clarify these things that that I'm kind of describing now, but I'm just going to state a a summary of what what it says about these three different distinctions in the law. The judicial law consists of the various commands given to Israel that governed and shaped how it functioned as a nation. As such, their purpose was fulfilled with the end of that theocratic nation of Israel as the nation of Israel existed to be able to prepare the way for the Messiah, to provide the lineage and the framework for the Messiah. So too, the laws governing that nation found their purpose in bringing about the Messiah. Even so, there are general principles of justice that continue to have moral value for us and provide wisdom for us today. The ceremonial law consists of much of the regulations concerning the sacrificial system and the specific aspects of worship under that system. These laws contain typological ordinances that pointed forward to Christ, and they were enforced until that system passed away and the new arrived. Their purpose was fulfilled in the person and the work of Christ. Just as the old covenant sacrifices have stopped because the perfect sacrifice has arrived in Jesus, so too have its laws and regulations been satisfied in the gospel. While we no longer follow the letter of these laws, they continue to help us understand the wonder and the nature of what Christ has done for us. The timeless truths behind and beneath them satisfied by the perfect lamb of God. 
and the moral law written on the hearts of mankind and then given to them first on stone tablets, then on scrolls of parchment is God's perfect rule of righteousness. All men in all times and in all places are obligated to obey these laws. Well, often when people refer to biblical law, they are referring actually to the moral law. Usually if someone's speaking of ceremonial law, they'll indicate that they're talking about ceremonial law, or they'll talk about it as sacrificial law or the sacrificial system. The judicial law may be referred to as civil law or as just the laws for the nation of Israel. But when we discuss the moral law, we will often refer to the threefold uses of the law. So there's three distinctions of the law within the law, and there's the threefold uses of the law. Now, these classifications, at least in this form, go back to John Calvin, yet the discussion of the different uses of the law goes back much further in the history of the church. And these three uses are helpful in understanding the purpose and the value of the law in the Christian's life and really in society at large. Well, the first use or purpose of the law is to reveal our need for a savior. Calvin said the law is a mirror reflecting to us both the perfect righteousness of God and our own sinfulness. The knowledge of the holiness of God and his perfect standard brings men to the conviction under the conviction of sin. In that sense, the law is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. Well, the second use or purpose of the law is to restrain evil and to promote righteousness. Even though the law itself is powerless to change the hearts of men, it can serve to protect the righteous from the unjust. The fear of consequences attached to law can curb those who have no regard for justice. In this sense, the law provides for the limited measure of justice that men will ever find on this earth. And it serves as a means of common grace for any society that will govern itself according to God's precepts. The third use or purpose of the law is that it reveals what is pleasing to God. It guides the regenerate into the good works that God has planned for them. It is the rule of life for believers, because for by it we know what pleases God and what doesn't please God, what is a soothing aroma to him and what is a foul sense. It reminds us of the way of life and salvation. Well, I would ask you to join me in prayer one more time as we seek to look to the text and see how these distinctions of the law and the uses of the law might help us better understand what Jesus is saying, help us give that framework for understanding Scripture. Father, we are in great need of your Spirit. We are in great need of the clarifying work that he does in the hearts of your people. Help us to understand rightly this passage. Help us to rightly understand our relationship to the law. Father, that we might, with David, be able to truly say that we delight in the law, that we love the law of God. Don't let it be to us 
a burden or something to, to be overcome. But let us see the face of God in his law. And joy to do what pleases our Lord. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get back to our text this morning. Jesus told the people that were standing in front of him, that had gathered around him, that he had not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Well, it's likely that this was an accusation that had been made against him, probably from the scribes and the Pharisees. And there were probably many who believed that that's exactly what he had done, that he was abolishing the law and the prophets. The scribes and, sorry, the scribes and Pharisees were generally accepted to be the authorities in all things related to Scripture and righteous living. Even so, many of the things that Jesus taught and many of the things that Jesus did were directed at refuting their teaching, were directed at refuting their understanding of Scripture. The scribes were essentially professional students. They were the teachers of the law. They devoted themselves to interpretation and application. The Pharisees were pious to the extreme. They went so far as to establish new levels, new standards of righteousness by which they might distinguish themselves as the most God-fearing righteous men in Israel. And these two groups had been so successful in their efforts that in their eyes and in the eyes of the people, there was nobody more devoted to Scripture, nobody more devoted to God than they were. Attacks on their teaching or on their character, their righteous living, was seen as an attack on Scripture itself. Therefore, when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the scribes, as he so often did, it appeared to many that he was indeed trying to abolish Scripture, to abolish the law and the prophets, that he was seeking to replace it with something new as though he was establishing his own teaching as the standard and that that standard was somehow different or in conflict with Scripture. There are many today who still believe that that's what Jesus was doing. There are many who even will call it the gospel of grace, yet deny, Jesus denied abolishing the law and the prophets. This is why it's so vital that we understand what Jesus was saying here. We must understand how he was both able to rebuke the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees, and at the same time, affirm, fulfill, and remain in line with the scriptures that they claimed to represent. We must understand what it means that the law will endure as long as heaven and earth, even in the smallest detail, when the apostles and Christ himself so often indicate that much of the law is no longer to be followed, at least no longer to be followed in the way it once was. What do I mean in saying that Jesus did and taught things or his apostles taught things that seem to contradict the law? 
Just a few examples. In Matthew 12, Jesus caused great controversy by healing on the Sabbath, something that the people generally agreed was not allowed. In Mark 7, 19, Jesus declared all foods clean, and that was confirmed in Acts 10 in a vision given to Peter, completely upending the purity and dietary law. There was also a vision that confirmed the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. In Galatians, we see Paul rebuking the church for requiring of, of the believers something that the law had commanded. In Acts 15, we read the judgment of the apostles that the Gentile believers who were coming to faith were only asked to refrain from anything sacrificed to idols, to eating blood or animals that had been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And even among those requests, Paul elsewhere spoke of meat, eating meat sacrificed to idols as a matter of conscience, that it wasn't innately sinful in and of itself, where sexual immorality was universally condemned. Over and over in Leviticus, we read that when people sinned, they were bring, to bring a sacrifice to the priest, that that priest would make atonement for their sin by that sacrifice, and their sin would be forgiven. But how can that be true? Because in Hebrews 10.4, we read it is impossible for the blood and goats to take away sin. At face value, it appears the New Testament is at odds with the Old. Perhaps Christ did abolish the law and the prophets. Well, I believe the key to understanding that they are, in fact, in perfect harmony is our passage this morning. In particular, Jesus' claim that he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Somehow, his fulfillment of the law and the prophets provides the means for understanding God's true intention and purpose in the law and prophets that the scribes and the Pharisees missed. This charge against Jesus was not only that he supposedly advocated for total freedom from the law, but essentially that he was denying the authority of Scripture. The issue at heart is the attitude of Jesus toward the authority of the law and the prophets. And we need to realize as we work through this passage that the authority of Scripture and the authority of Christ are closely linked. They're unavoidably linked. They're tied together. You cannot separate the one from the other. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, the careful student of the Bible must maintain that Christ so identified himself with Scripture and so interpreted his ministry in the light of Scripture that it is impossible to weaken the authority of the one without at the same time weakening the authority of the other. Everything seems to hinge on how Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. The ceremonial law, the judicial law, must have their purposes met and completed in the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and the reign of God on this earth in Christ. Well, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Matthew wrote earlier in this gospel, it's been a regular theme, about how Jesus fulfilled several prophecies concerning the Messiah, where he was born, how he was born, to whom he was born, and the different places that he would travel to as he fled to Egypt and they came back. And when we hear the word fulfill in scripture, that's the kind of thing that we're looking for. We think of prophecy in the Old Testament as speaking of future events that would take place. 
So the fulfillment of scripture speaks of the events happening as they were promised to happen. And surely Jesus did fulfill the prophets in this way. His life was foretold by the prophets. His ministry was spoken of by the prophets. He came and did what the prophets said he would do. Yet Jesus did not just say that he came to fulfill the prophets, but that he fulfilled the law and the prophets. We generally don't think of the law of God as prophetic. But in Matthew eleven thirteen, Jesus said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, speaking of John the Baptist. So all of scripture up to and including the message of John the Baptist was pointing forward, was prophesying of Christ. In John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Everything that God had spoken to man was to point to his son, and to prepare them for his coming. So yes, the law of God is perfect, is unchangeable. Yet the law of God was not the final, nor was it the most clear and complete word that God had for mankind. We read in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus is the ultimate, the perfect, the final, the complete revelation of God for mankind. It is not that he superseded or that he replaced or he counted as foolish or incorrect anything that had come from before, but it was that everything that had come from before found its intended purpose in Christ. Everything that had come before found its perfect fulfillment in Christ. That Christ is the measure of everything that had come before. To be found in him. To be understood through him. Well, God is the ultimate communicator. One of, one of the basic rules of teaching is that if you really want someone to understand something, you first tell them what you're going to say and then you say it, and then you look back and remind them what you said. So you give a preview, you get the actual essence, and then you get a clarification or a pointing back, a reminder, a restatement of the essence. This is what God has done in communicating with mankind. First, he told man what he was going to do. The prophesying, the law, and the prophets pointing forward to Christ. Then he actually did it. He sent Jesus the perfect image, the magnificence of the Father. He sent him to this earth. And then afterwards, he explained what he had done and further explained the significance of the Son through the Gospels and the teachings of the apostles. Well, just as one example, we can look at the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It may be easy for us to think that this is part of the law that was just abolished in Christ, that the, that the sacrificial system has nothing for us anymore, that Jesus simply cast it aside. However, the reason that we do not still practice animal sacrifice as prescribed in the sacrificial law is not that the need for a sacrifice for sin is gone, but it's that it has been perfectly met in Christ. 
It isn't as though blood is no longer the, pi- the price, that blood is no longer required for the forgiveness of sin. It's that the worthy sacrifice had finally been found and a sacrifice that did not need to be repeated day after day and year after year. So in essence, we have in the law the preview, in Christ the reality, and in the apostles the explanation of that reality. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the preview that the sacrificial system gave us was the clear, unavoidable understanding that the penalty of sin is death. The seriousness of the offense of rebellion against God that can only be satisfied by death, either the death of the offender or the death of a blameless substitute. This sobering fact was woven into every fabric of the law of God, every fabric of the culture of the people of God. God taught his people that lesson over hundreds of years as they time and again were reminded that the requirement for anything less than perfection was death. The constant reminder of this penalty was previewed in the slaughter of countless animals. Their blood, the pungent display and reminder of the cost of forgiveness. We don't tend to think about that as part of the sacrificial system, but it was a gruesome, bloody, messy thing. Animals being slaughtered continually. This constant reminder, this this aroma that the people would have known as burning flesh, a reminder of the cost of forgiveness. And in Christ, we find the reality to which all these sacrifices were pointing. Jesus was the only true and perfect sacrifice that could ever atone for the sins of men. In taking on flesh, the Son of God was able to fulfill all the requirements of God's perfect standard. He provided in himself what the animal sacrifices were only able to point to the forgiveness of sins by God for everybody he came to redeem. The necessity of the death of the Son of God for the forgiveness of man's sins was the reality that the sacrificial system was designed to display. In the teachings of the apostle, we have the careful and exact explanation of who Jesus was and what he accomplished on this earth. The New Testament authors, through the preview of the Old Testament and the reality of the life of Christ, explain how and why everything happened the way that it did and what it all means for us today. The apostles told us that the sacrificial system is still part of the reality in God's universe, but now the actual sacrifice has been fulfilled in Christ, so we no longer sacrifice animals. And rather now, by faith in Jesus, we accept his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. The apostles were intimately familiar with both the preview and the reality, and their careful explanation is our ground for confidence and our understanding. The theme of the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, is Jesus Christ. He is the one who was promised and pointed toward in the Old Testament. 
He is the one who came and did all that was necessary. And he is the one whose life and teaching is now recorded and interpreted by the apostles for our understanding. So this is what it means that Jesus came to fulfill all that was given in the law and the prophets. So the true foundation of which the ceremonial law in the sacrificial system was representing was not abolished, even though the temporal actions and requirements were. The law of guilt and judgment for sin still stands, even though that symbols that prepared us to understand what God gave us in his son, those symbols are no longer needed. Truth and reality do not change, even though the symbols and the means which we are given to understand them may as our understanding grows. When Jesus, after declaring that in Scripture, all Scripture is fulfilled in him, continued, For what I say to you, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth is passed away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Well, in the beginning of the statement, when Jesus says, truly I say to you, he is telling us that what he's about to say is of the utmost importance. One of the downsides of a red letter Bible is that it can kind of teach you that only the red letters matter. And there are people that actually live like that, that the only part of scripture that matters is what Jesus actually said. Well, if you want to follow that kind of logic, then the only thing of what Jesus said that really, really matters is when he says, truly, I say to you, because that's another level of saying, listen, focus. And of course, we don't ascribe to either of those, those thoughts. Everything here breathed out is the word of God. Everything in here is the word of Christ. But yes, we ought to pay special attention when Christ himself seeks out and grabs our attention with this. There are two time qualifiers in this statement. The first being until heaven and earth have passed away. That statement is roughly equivalent to what we might say when, when hell freezes over. It does not necessarily mean never, but more exactly, not until this universe ceases to exist as we know it. So almost never. The second is until all is accomplished. And that qualifier speaks of the time when everything that has been previewed has come to pass in reality. Then it's no longer that it's not valid and important, but that its true explanation will have been made known. So what Jesus is saying is that not everything will come to pass. Sorry. What Jesus is saying is that everything that has will come to pass as it has been declared. The reality will be exactly what God has said it will be. Just as God is eternal and unchangeable, his word is eternal and unchangeable. Nothing that God has declared, nothing that God has ever declared, could ever be unimportant or untrue. Even though its fulfillment might give sight to a reality that's a little different than we expected. The word of God the law of God, is a reflection of the character and the nature of God. Therefore, it is fixed and perfect. It is never revoked or rescinded. It is only fulfilled and completed. 
the dot of every I, the cross of every T will be remembered. That imagery works in English just as well as it does in Hebrew. Every single detail will be fulfilled. Not even the smallest stroke of the pen will be forgotten or ignored. There is no idle or unimportant word that God has ever given to his people. Everything will come to pass. Everything will be fulfilled. And now that the reality has arrived in Jesus, the smallest letters and strokes will be seen in a new light, but they will not be discarded. Just as we are warned at the end of the revelation of John, we are not to alter the word of God in any way. Everything is important. Jesus continued, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus, after clearly stating that everything in Scripture will stand, gives us a warning to anyone who might seek to change the message. Whoever declares is unimportant, whoever takes away even the smallest part of the law will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, if the slightest offense makes one the least in the kingdom, what does a greater offense do? How many have ignored this warning and have set aside vast portions of Scripture as having nothing to do with us? How many of us by practice, if not by design, have been guilty of doing the very thing that Jesus warns us against? There are entire denominations and seminaries that teach that most of the Bible has nothing to do with the New Testament believer since grace has replaced the law. Yes, because of Christ, the law does not require the actions it once did. In Christ, the law and the prophets are fulfilled, yet they are far from being meaningless in our day. Now, we can finally understand their true meaning and purpose. Now, as we will continue to see as we work through Matthew 5, we'll be able to truly understand what God demands. We will just, by his spirit, actually be able to obey, to follow in obedience. Now that we understand the law is not about earning our place before God, but walking in obedience and love to please him. Heed the warning of Christ. Do not set aside what he has established. Do not be wiser in your eyes than God and call unimportant what God has said is important. If for no other reason than because the infinite and glorious God has declared it so. The law of God displays the character and the nature of God. And nothing of God is unimportant. Our desire should never be to see what we can do without when it comes to God but rather to see how we can fully understand who God is and what he desires of us. It truly shows the heart of many professing Christians that the brunt of their dealings with the law of God is in the effort to minimize what they must do and what they must believe 
to be able to gain what they most desire from God. Rather than that, their desire should be to know him and to do everything that pleases him. Do you minimize God's law? Even those things that are no longer necessary because their purpose has been fulfilled in Christ are important for our understanding and our appreciation of him. Even the ceremonial and judicial law teach us something about our God and what he desires for his people. Yet greater is the fault when people seek to minimize the moral law of God and the clear testimony to the character of God that it represents. What does it communicate when we diminish the importance of God's law for his people? What does it communicate when we treat it as a heavy burden, a weight, something that we are ashamed of or embarrassed to acknowledge? Should we, who have been shown the fullness of God's love and grace in Christ, should we have a lesser view of God's law than the Old Testament saints? Just read through the Psalms. David time and again professed his love for the law of God. Even when he felt the weight of the judgment of sin, he still confessed that he loved the law of God. He delighted in the law of God. He meditated on the law of God day and night. It sustained him. It strengthened him. Paul wrote about delighting in the law in his inmost being. Why should we hold at such a distance that which the saints before us took so much delight? It's a dangerous thing for us to neglect the law of God. The law continually points us back to Christ. The law keeps us on the narrow path. When the church neglects the law of God, it ceases to be the salt of the earth. The law convicts us of sin and points us to Christ. It restrains evil and promotes righteousness. And it reveals what is pleasing to God. Well, while it is possible to get some things wrong in Scripture and still be able to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's also possible to get most of it right and to be left outside of the kingdom. The scribes and Pharisees were experts in even the most obscure details of the law. And yet time and again, Jesus placed them outside of the kingdom. He told the people, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, as far as the letter of the law was concerned, these men were blameless Remember what Paul said of himself in Philippians 3, 4 through 6, where he said, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul said that even as a persecutor of the church, According to the righteousness under the law, he was blameless. And that is before he was a Christian. But he also said in Galatians 3.11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, 
for the righteous shall live by faith. So while the righteousness according to the letter of the law may make someone a good person in the eyes of the world, it cannot fulfill the true demands of the law, and therefore it cannot give a person the kingdom of heaven. There are many around us who believe that they are right with God because they are essentially good people. Many of us have either had this thought about ourselves or somebody we know. But what does God say? What does Christ say of good people that rely on their own righteousness? No amount of human goodness has any claim on the kingdom of heaven. What is required for entrance in the kingdom of heaven is a righteousness that is completely apart from the righteousness of man, completely apart from any righteousness obtained by the following of the law. The righteousness of God that he, that he demands is not simply something that's a greater degree. It's not as though in reality you could be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees if we just did more of what they were doing. It is not a matter of degree. It's a matter of being of the completely different realm and nature. That God demands divine righteousness. That is the righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees that is required in the kingdom. He demands it and then he provides it for all who believe in Christ as the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. While man might be able to be righteous according to the letter of the law, he might be able to not commit murder. Only God can give him a heart that actually fulfills the spirit of the law that he might actually love and bless his enemy. Grace does not abolish the demand of the law. It is grace that gives us the ability to follow the law, the ability to fulfill the law, the eternal standard according to the nature of God. There are many who claim that grace frees us from the worry of having to fulfill the law's demands. They rightly understand that our salvation is of grace and it is of nothing that we could ever do. Yet somehow there are many who make that same grace of God out to be an excuse for continuing to do those things that God hates and condemns. So beloved, I tell you that any grace that empowers a person to remain in sin is no grace from God, but a forfeitry straight from the fires of hell. God is not divided against himself. His perfect and complete grace is not at war with his righteousness and holiness. So the grace of God does not give us a license to sin, but it rather enables us to obey it empowers us to be conformed to the image of God's own Son. In 1 Peter 1, 2, Peter tells us that as believers, we were chosen by God through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey. Grace transforms us so that what, we, what was once a heavy burden to us in trying to conform ourselves to the standard of God, something that we were never able, able actually to do, that that is actually accomplished and said by God making obedience into a delight, into the natural outflow of a redeemed heart. 
The perfect standard of God is not abolished by grace. Grace instead changes us and writes his perfect law on our hearts as he gives us his spirit to dwell within us to bring about our obedience to all that God desires. No, in this life we will not be perfect. Our flesh will continue to war against us. Yet this is not the reality that will one day be ours in completion. God did not save us from having to obey him. By grace, he enabled us to be able to obey him. And that obedience is not out of an effort to earn, but out of a true love and a desire to please. There is great freedom in Christ, but do not take that freedom to be freedom from Christ. First Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Many people seek to use religion to avoid God. Sounds counterintuitive, but it's exactly what they do. By doing just enough, many believe that they free themselves from any concern of God or his son. Well, the gospel, the grace of God is not freedom from God, but rather it is freedom to be obedient and be made pleasing to God. Christ is the fulfillment of all scripture. And in Christ, we have the means of obeying and pleasing God. Beloved, how can we say that we love Christ, that we love his father who is in heaven, when we want nothing to do with pleasing him? As Jesus said, if you love him, obey him. In John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 3:36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him If you do not love him you do not know him and if you do not know him seek him while he may yet be found The life and the message of Jesus ought not give you the impression that everything that God had spoken before to his people everything that he had given to him and everything that he had done for them was defective or a failure. Those things before Christ were never meant to be the end in and of themselves. Their purpose was always to prepare the way for the one who was to come. What came before was a shadow. It gave the people a concept of what was real and it provided context for the full revelation of God in his son. It is only natural that many of the responses prescribed for God's people that were tied to the shadow would change when the reality was here. And the clearer vision provided clarity in response. A good coach will guide an athlete to train for the coming contest. Before the event, the athlete may not understand the purpose of the exercises. Yet if they trust their coach, they will give themselves to the training to run each drill with precision, to lift each weight with great effort. Their coach prepares them to be ready for what they cannot understand until it arrives. 
When the contest finally arrives, will the, con will the athlete continue to run drills and lift weights? Or will they take what they have learned and apply it to the task at hand? Does that make all the training meaningless or defective? Far from it. It is the real event that all the training finally makes sense and everything comes together. And in Christ, we have the reality. Let us be thankful for everything that God made, everything that God gave, everything that God did to make his people ready to receive him, to know him, to love him, and to obey him. Christ is the purpose and the goal of it all. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that it is all about Christ. It's all about your son. Father, in your mercy, may your spirit bring to, to recall in their minds truths that have been spoken from your word and to erase where this poor stammering tongue is confused. Father, make Christ more beautiful in our eyes. Make your perfect and holy standard in your law more beautiful in our eyes. Now that Christ has accomplished all that needs to be done to come before you and stand confidently before you, that we are not looking at your law as an impossible task in order to achieve something that we desperately desire. But it is the sweetness of what pleases our God. Not a burden, but our desire. Not a chore, but an act of love. Help us to understand. Help us to walk in joy in the things of God. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to the table of our Lord. As we think about all that Christ fulfilled, I don't think there is a clearer picture of that. And we, we look at the sacrifices. We look at his death on the cross. His body literally broken. His blood shed. The gruesome scene in the death of our Lord the death of our king, the perfect spotless lamb of God with the sacrifice that is not repeated, is not as, as the Catholic church still remind, thinks that they do every time they get to mass where it, it's once again, let's, let's shed the blood and break the body of Christ in order to once again make the sacrifice. No, it, it is the once for all, the one time that our savior bled for us was enough to be efficient and sufficient to save all who believe in him. So if you are walking in faith, if you do trust in our Savior and in the sacrifice that he gave for us of himself, 
and you are walking in love for him in the desire to be obedient to his calling, to obey his commands, not as an act of proving ourselves, but an act of delight because we love our Lord and Savior. And then I invite you to come to grab over the elements. And in just a moment, I'll pray for us and we'll take them together. Father, as we approach the, the cup and the bread, may we take these in faith. May we trust in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. Help us to love him, to follow him, to obey him. May we take of this in a worthy manner, because what Christ has done and by his name. Amen. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. He continued that I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That just makes us long to be with Christ. Christ is the perfect revelation of the Father. Yet for you and I, we, we believe even though we have not seen, but blessed will be that day when we do see him face to face, when we are made like him because we will see him as he is. Even as we remember what he has done, we long for what is yet to come in the true consummation, the end of the age.